Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take this word and you'd plant it in our hearts, and that it would bear much fruit. I pray, God, that um, the thoughts that I've jotted down to share this morning would be taken and reformed by you and used to bear fruit in this beautiful diversity of communities that are represented by leaders in this room. And I pray, Lord, that if it be your will, that there might be something of the journey that I've been on with others as it relates to this ancient practice called rule of life, this incredibly broad topic with just a range of levels of engagement within this room, I'm sure, and that a bit of the journey I've been on might spur on my brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> Ben Sass, who's a Yale historian and now a U.S. senator, wrote a book called Them, in which he argues that everybody's talking about COVID right now, but when history is being written on the time that you and I live in, in a couple of hundred years, they won't be talking about the changes that were brought on by the pandemic. They'll be talking about the changes that were brought on by technology. Because in a single generation, we've gone from hyper-local farming and manual labor culture and economy to tons of industries working in the cloud, the immaterial. From the advent of the internet to everyone's carrying the internet around in their pocket. From social gatherings to social media. From hometowns where everybody knows you to the freedom to move from city to city and reinvent yourself from basic goods driving the economy to ideas and startups driving our economy, from a common spirituality to widespread suspicion about anything that's common when it comes to spirituality. And all of that just in your mother's lifetime. See, you and I are living through a historic cultural shift. And whenever the culture is changing, the church, which exists within culture and context, is always changing with it. Phyllis Tickle, in her book, The Great Emergence, says this, We are going through our every 500 years sort of rummage sale, an upheaval in culture and worldview that will inevitably reshape our culture and institutions as surely as the great schism of the 11th century and the great reformation of the 16th century. And she goes on to name the tsunami wave of change that she sees hitting the church. She describes it like this, It is profoundly spirit-centered, seeking discernment from deep listening, it is more concerned with right practice than right belief. It is comfortable with questions and leery of answers. It embraces the truth of paradox over dualistic absolutes of right and wrong, and it rejects hierarchical culture, hierarchical culture welcoming shared leadership and democratic decision-making. Does her diagnosis ring true to you? Yes. 
Today's 30 and 40-somethings uh, are, and the generations that are coming behind them are far more interested in an experience than they are in explanation. Young adults today are more likely to try a yoga class or a, or a mindfulness app or a Christian prayer room than they are to listen to a sermon. And that's new. Previous generations wanted information and answers to hard questions. That's why books like The Case for Christ and Evidence That Demands a Verdict did so well. It was a heyday for apologists. Win my mind and you get my heart. But today we're suspicious of experts, forever aware that there's another perspective on the same information, but my experience, that's something there's no greater authority on. So experience now wins my trust, win my heart, and you might get my mind. Today, authority is won by experience and not expertise. For instance, we did a teaching series here at Bridgetown on suffering last winter during the season of Lent. But who has the authority to speak on suffering? Is it the Christian pastor who reflected on biblical passages on suffering at an unreasonably fancy coffee shop like I did? <laughs> or, or is it the PhD who studied global history of oppression and the psychology of the oppressed? Or is it the person who suffered, who's come from an ancestry of suffering and has lived in the collateral of oppression? Or just think about in the political sphere, uh, whose opinion matters when it comes to immigration? Is it the politician who double majored at Harvard? Or is it, the first, is it the first generation immigrant who fought invisible battles and crossed the border? There's a divide today. Uh, many would listen to experience before they listen to expertise. And so when it comes to faith, what used to be convince me has become show me. And I'm not even arguing for one over the other. I I'm just commenting on this as a neutral observer. The question that I'm interested in is this one. If all of that is true, what's required of disciples like us and churches like the ones we represent at a time like this? New wineskins. So John Mark opened this conference talking about the vision, the desperate need uh, for spiritual formation, meaning deep, radical, whole life transformation to Jesus in our time. A call to move from information to formation. That's the vision. That's where we started. And I'll close talking about the vow. Because the truth we're confronting this morning is to live a vision continuously requires a vow or what's been known throughout church history primarily as a rule of life. And so I simply want to take us through the why, what, and how. What is a rule of life? Why do we need it? And then how do we live it? That's a map for where we're headed, but I also wanna give you an anchor to hold on to as we bounce all over the place. And it's Matthew chapter nine. This is where we'll start and it's where we'll end. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So according to Jesus, if we fail to perceive what God is up to in our time, and the proper container to hold the blessing of God in our time, it results in a double loss. The wine is spilled, meaning God's presence and power offered to his people is wasted, and the wineskins burst. The container for holding the blessing of God at a previous era is then left tattered and broken trying to hold this new wine. 
I heard the true story of a young Christ follower who had converted from Islam, and then he started leading a Bible study among his friends and led literally hundreds to Jesus. The group began to grow and meet together, and there was this book of Acts kind of story that was unfolding among this unlikely community. And then a really well-intentioned local pastor tried to tame this wild commitment to Jesus and the many traps and foibles that can result from discipleship apart from a professional. And so he offered his church as a home to that group of people, and he tried to fit these couple hundred Muslim converts into his church's existing and active small group structure. And as a result, within a year, the vast majority of those young Christians had walked away from the faith altogether. You see, by trying to fit new wine into an old wineskin, a double tragedy unfolded. It hurt the fresh work God was doing, and it hurt that local church and the faithful people that were following Jesus within it. Do you see it? This is what Jesus cautioned against, but unlike some of Jesus' teaching, this was not a clever parable or a formal sermon. Jesus said these words in response to a question. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, we don't recognize the expression of your spirituality. What is your covenant? What are your vows? And these are disciples of John the Baptist asking. They're, they're curious friends. They're not agitated opponents. They're saying something like, we like your vision, but how do you live your vision continuously? We like your wine. What's your wineskin? The central conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was about wineskins. They actually had a lot in common on the surface. They both had a desire for the kingdom of God, a commitment to holy living, reverence for the scripture and the history of God's people. The vision has a number of parallels, but the vow, the way they lived that vision continuously, miles apart. The Pharisees added to the law. They fenced the Torah. The, the logic was that way if we break a rule, we won't break the law. We'll just break one of the fake laws we've made that keeps us away from the law. So by legalistic perfection, we can usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus, on the other hand, said things like, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then, of course, he fulfilled them through his life, death, and resurrection. So grace is the new wineskin that holds this new wine. It's a new vow to express this new vision. Now, marriage is the only vow that we really have left, that we practice commonly in Western culture. And as a wedding officiant, uh, many of you will know, the interesting thing is you can allow someone to have any kind of ceremony they want, but if at some point vows are not spoken between bride and groom, you can't legally sign the papers. Uh, vows are the legally binding part of a marriage union. I love you and you love me. We are in love, so why formalize something as passionate and lively as love with something as drab as vows? Because to live a vision continuously, a love that's so fiery in our hearts today over the ups and downs of all the life that's still ahead, well, that requires vows. That's the fact we're acknowledging every time we say for richer or for poorer until death do us part. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously when officiating a wedding ceremony offered this piece of advice to the young couple. Today you are young and very much in love and think that your love can sustain your marriage. It can't. Let your marriage sustain your love. 
So Bonhoeffer is looking at these two people with the fire of love in their hearts for one another. Nothing matters more than this other person. Every other plan is out the window. And he's saying something like, love the vision. And I can see that you really believe it. You really want it. So you're going to need a vow. Vows are the container to hold a vision where it can flourish. They're like the proper pot for a plant, one with the right soil and the right amount of space for the roots to grow. They're the right container to plant a seed within so that it can become its full potential. That's what a vow does for a vision. It puts it in the container where it can flourish. The New York Times columnist and author David Brooks defines a commitment as falling in love with something or someone and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. To live a vision continuously requires a vow. Now, of course, it should be noted that every covenant we make to God is, of course, secondary to the covenant he first has made to us. Every expression of love we offer to God is only secondary to his expression of love to us. We love because he first loved us. So every human vow is in response to God's new and better covenant. But human vows to God are also biblical, and they're all throughout the Psalms, and number six uh, talks about the Nazarite vow and details the purification rites, or the rule of life that a uh, priest would live by to enter the Holy of Holies. Only the Nazarites were people that lived that continuously, making their lives a sign of God's presence among his people. And then later in Acts chapter 21, there's a clear indication that the Apostle Paul took the Nazarite vow, which committed him to a particular way of fasting, dressing, and purity for the sake of union with Jesus at a critical juncture in his ministry. So if the Apostle Paul, the most bullish proponent of grace and destroyer of legalism, made vows to God, that's a pretty strong biblical endorsement, that, or maybe the strongest we could get. The Catholic Encyclopedia defines vow as an act of generosity toward God. It is the means by which we give God the only thing we have to offer him, and that's more of ourselves to work with, more of our inner lives for him to inhabit and do with as he sees fit. So a vow, as I'm naming it, or a rule of life, as it's more commonly called, is never a means to make God love you more or prove your commitment to him. It is the means by which we give God more of ourselves to work with. It is love, not legalism or fear, that drives us to make vows to a spouse. And it is love, love always and love only, that drives us to make vows to God. Psalm 56, I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. I'm under vows to God, why? That I may walk before God in the light of life. See, vows are how we learn to live in the promised land when we've grown up in Egypt. And at this critical juncture in church history, our vision is not new or novel. It's ancient, and so is our vow. The ancient practice of a rule of life is the container that will allow this new vision to flourish. It is the new wineskin, the ancient wineskin, that can hold this new wine. So that brings us to what on earth is a rule of life? <laughs> because there's obviously a broad level of understanding and engagement with that practice in this room. I just wanna answer the question, what is a rule of life biblically, historically, and practically in that order? So first, biblically. Jesus famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, and the life. Let's break that down. So I am the life. Uh, Aristotle popularized the concept of telos, which is the ultimate aim of an individual life. And one's telos determines everything. Like if you believe career success is ultimately and deeply satisfying, then you will express that belief through certain practices and priorities aimed at ambition. Or if you believe that a life of fun and adventure is the life of ultimate purpose, then you will express that through different priorities and practices aimed at adventure. You see, telos aims our life and determines our practices. And Jesus is saying, I am the telos. I am the full, free, satisfying life. Now the pathway to that telos is the way and the truth. And as church history unfolded around Jesus' teaching, that pathway was codified in what we call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now orthodoxy is what we believe and orthopraxy is how we live or how we express or practice what we believe. So I am the truth. In tragic irony, it was uh, those whose spiritual practice most mirrored Jesus' own whose hearts were furthest from him. He reserved his harshest words of critique for the Pharisees who had a carefully practiced faith without belief in him as Savior and Lord. I am the way. In John 7, Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will, to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, if you want to know if my teachings are true, try them. See if they lead you to life. The earliest Christians were known as followers of the way because they were known first and foremost not for their doctrinal statement, but for their countercultural lifestyle, for their orthopraxy. So practice without belief does not result in true life. Some are drawn to the lifestyle of Jesus, but they do not want to submit to him as Lord and Savior. They want the kingdom without the king. Belief without practice equally does not result in true life. Others are drawn to Jesus' teaching, but then they have lives that are more shaped by American culture than by Jesus of Nazareth. They want the king without the kingdom. But the equation that Jesus puts forth for us in this simple verse is this, the way of Jesus plus the truth of Jesus equals the life of Jesus. So then how do we hold the two together, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, not just celebrating allegiance to Jesus' truth claims, but ordering our lives in a way that we become formed, that we become like him, a rule of life. That brings us to historically. Now historically, a rule of life is not a new idea, it's an ancient one. Its origins go back at least all the way to the fourth and fifth century Celtic tradition, uh, but many believe it predates them, tracing it all the way back to the desert fathers and mothers. And in the early, day, the early days, the terms way of life and rule of life were used interchangeably. Way of life is the English translation, uh, or the English translation of the Greek, and rule of life is the English translation of the Latin phrase. Then over time, Latin became the universal language, and rule of life won out in Christian communities across the globe, and that's the terminology that we're handed today. And I know you hate that. You so wish that way of life had won out instead. And that's because you're a 21st century Westerner and not uh, a 4th century Middle Easterner or a 1st century Middle Easterner. We use the word rule today to mean a list of do's and don'ts because we typically use that term in its plural form. Follow the rules and you won't get in trouble. But we're talking about the singular form of that word, a rule of life, 
not rules of life. And rule comes from the Latin regula, from which we get the English regular and ruler. Ruler, as in an instrument for drawing a straight line. So when we say rule of life, we mean a straight line between you and your telos. The most direct route between who you are today and life and life to the full that you're trying to live into. Now also note that it's a rule, not a law. Laws are handed down to us by another authority and imposed on us by another. Rules, the ancient understanding, are discovered and chosen by an individual. Laws keep us away from the negative. Think speed limit. Rules, on the other hand, draw us toward the positive. So the Pharisees lived by laws. They fenced the Torah, as we named before, but Jesus lived by a rule. Come to me and you'll get rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now Jesus did not say, come to me and live however you want. He's got a yoke, and he's very upfront about that. But he's also an invitational teacher, and his invitation is good. It's toward a source of life. That's a rule. Every monastic movement in history, every last one of them, decided at some point along the way that they needed a rule of life. And then that made its way into both the lives and the traditions of the mystics and the Catholics and the Protestants and the evangelicals and into the world of spiritual formation. Today you will read rule of life in modern writings from people like Dallas Willard, Pete Scazzaro, Ruth Haley Barton, Rich Velotis, Richard Foster, Marjorie Thompson, and Robert Mulholland, just to name a few. Pretty much every robust discipleship group or cohort or community culminates in the creation of a rule of life. All to say this is not a practice for believers of a certain personality type or life stage. This is a historic practice of the Christian faith traced all the way back to the earliest communities. Which finally brings us to practically what is a rule of life. Well traditionally a rule of life has been understood through the image of a trellis. Some scholars argue that the language itself is actually historically connected, like a word picture. Now, we don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure is that trellis was a metaphor used by ancient teachers to explain rule of life. And if you were to drive 40 minutes from where you're sitting right now, you'd be in wine country. Walk through a vineyard and every grapevine will be growing on a trellis. Why? Because a grapevine allowed just to grow wildly on the ground will bear fruit. But when it's put on a trellis, uh, something to support it, it will be even more fruitful in the language of Jesus. This is how the ancients explained a rule of life. A trellis is not a list of rules to keep the vine in line. Uh, a trellis is a structure to support the vine and make it even more fruitful. And that's what a rule of life is. A rule of life is a way of making all of your life a response to the Spirit's invitations. Or if you prefer, it's a way of turning all of your life into a spiritual practice. And as John mentioned for us last night, anything can be a spiritual practice. Bible reading and an aimless Saturday stroll. Solitary prayer and laughter with friends. A contemplative silence in the morning and a glass of wine in the evening. Any of it can be a spiritual practice. So if that's true, what makes something a spiritual practice? It's just connecting the gift to the giver. And that tends to be easier with things like scripture and prayer and silence. So I would say those practices are essential. They're like the major food groups of a healthy spiritual diet. But when you pour a glass of wine on the Sabbath and that first sip reminds you of the coming feast that will never end when heaven and earth become one and King Jesus is among us, 
that's a spiritual practice. And when you walk slowly enough on a Saturday to notice all that you rush past in the frenzy of the ordinary week, and you see natural creation and the city that you call home through the eyes of the creative God, that's a spiritual practice. Richard Foster defines spiritual practice as a way of placing yourself where God can bless you. See, spiritual practices are powerless in and of themselves. Their power lies in that they make you proximate to God's presence and your hands open to God's blessing. And because a trellis isn't as common a metaphor today as it was in the ancient world, I prefer to think of a rule of life as an anchor. Because an anchor holds a boat in a particular place. And the reason for that is because if you're in a boat on the ocean, you're always drifting. There's always some kind of current. But if you're standing on that boat, you don't notice the drift, right? It, unless it's a particularly rough day at sea, it just feels like you're, you're stationary until what? Until you feel the tug of the anchor pull that you dropped. And then you suddenly realize, oh, we've been moving this whole time. Now, we are pulled in many directions by the cultural current and the changing winds of circumstances in our lives. A rule of life is a way to drop anchor to keep me where I intend to stay. It anchors me where God can bless me, to borrow from Foster. Andy Crouch defined a rule of life this way, and I find it helpful. A set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. So if you would, just humor me with a brief exercise. Close your eyes and picture the person that you admire most, just someone who pulls holiness out of you. Just by their presence, when you're around them, it's as if your true self is being drawn to the surface of your being. Now what is it about them? How do you feel when you're around them? What does their presence communicate? What does their life say? And now picture yourself at something like 80 years old. Who do you want to be? How do you want people to feel when they're around you? What do you want to pull out of them just by your presence? What does your life say? And now staying in this moment just a bit longer. Here's a question worth spending some time with. Is how I live today taking me where I want to go? Your morning routine, your work hours, your weekend plans, your spiritual practices, your habits. I'm talking about everything from the way you spend the first 15 minutes of your morning to your diet to your typical weekday evening. And your attention, your media consumption, your reading, your listening, or the free devotion of your imagination is all of it taking you there? Is it aimed directly at your telos? Or is it slightly off center? And you can come back to me now. John Mark uh, referenced last night that famous line from Stephen Covey, we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. So is your rule a straight line to your telos? Or might the life you're living be more like a well-intentioned but winding and wandering journey? 
And maybe the even more important question than where your path is taking you is what is that path doing to you as you go? Because there is no neutral in the world we live in. You are being formed right now. There is only intentional spiritual formation and unintentional spiritual formation. So is the way you are living forming you into who you want to become or is there a gap? Maybe a troublingly wide gap between who you are now and who you're becoming and who you'd like to become. You see, the truth that I'm circling around here is this, you already have a rule of life. This is not a call to develop a rule of life. You have one, written or unwritten, chosen by you or chosen for you, conscious or unconscious, based on the kind of person you want to grow into or based on the over-promising, under-delivering pleasure you want to feel. The question isn't, do you have a rule of life? The question is, do you know what your rule of life is? Because whatever's at the center for you, it's taking you somewhere and it's forming you into its image as you're going. So I am not here to suggest to you a new spiritual practice. I'm suggesting attention and intention where you may have been inattentive and unintentional. You see, one of the core problems of the human person, in my experience at least, is this, that there's a gap between our intention and our actual lives. Every one of us really means to be present and kind and easygoing, and that perfect balance between driven and relational. And every one of us will wake up one day to discover that we've become a certain kind of spouse and a certain kind of parent and a certain kind of friend and a certain kind of pastor. There's a gap between who I intend to be and who I am, and that's where a rule of life lives, right in that gap between the intended and the actual. So for me, every Monday morning, I revisit my rule of life as a part of my time with God. And I structure my rule of life under this simple four-part grid, pray, rest, relationships, work. I've done it that way for years because that was handed on to me by a mentor and it was a container that I could fit the different activities of my life within, a way to order the major areas of devotion in my life. So every Monday morning, I sit silently in contemplative prayer, I read a psalm, and then another passage from scripture, and then I pray. And if it's Monday morning, that time of prayer includes re-examining my rule of life and the week that I just lived and the week that I'm just beginning. And I read things like pray. I, I wanna order my days by a daily prayer rhythm of morning, midday, and evening prayer with God and rest, and I revisit practices like Sabbath, and sleep, and exercise, and relationships. I've set commitments to time with Kirsten, my wife, and um, <clears throat> a commitment to turn my phone off from 6 to 8 p.m., uh, and to limit the number of evenings that I'm away from my family, because in 12 years, Hank, who's my six-year-old, he's gonna move out, and I won't care how this talk went then. In 12 years, I'd give anything for one more Wednesday night on the couch reading a book to six-year-old Hank. But I'll never be able to get it back. So how do I live attentive to God's presence to me there this evening, right now? And then finally, work. I read statements like, I wanna be a pastor who prays. I wanna be a pastor who listens. I wanna be a pastor who remembers the poor. Each of those statements, those desires that live within me, there are committed practices that are beneath them. 
So I read over that rule of life, and then I pray it into being, and then I plan it into my week, and then I live it as best I can, despite the fact that my intentions every Monday morning outrun my actual life in the seven days that follow. Life is unpredictable, and it's filled with interruption. We cannot plan our way into spiritual wholeness. What we can do, though, is put the big pieces in first, so that the work demands and the unexpected interruptions and the abnormalities of every week fit around the Spirit's invitations to us rather than crowding them out. So my definition of a rule of life, if I had to offer one, would be this. A way of living today in line with my deepest desires and God's deepest transformation. A rule of life's not another thing to do. It's just an intentional way to do all that you're already doing. And a rule of life should be more about subtraction than it is about addition. A well-crafted rule of life will make you do more, not do less. Most of us are over busy. So a rule of life is a filter for decluttering our lives to give ourselves to that which is most essential, not trying to wedge the essential in around the clutter. And I wanna be more radical in my old age than I am now. I want to be increasingly radicalized to Jesus every passing year of my life. That's my telos. That's who I wanna be when I'm 80. But to get there, to become that, I have to have a schedule that aligns with my values and a way to live that's pointed in that direction. I need a rule of life because to live a vision continuously requires a vow. So now that we know what a rule of life is, why do we need a rule of life? Well, by the fourth century, the the Christian church was a phenomenon. A band of oppressed peasants had grown and grown until Emperor Constantine, the most important person on the planet, named Christianity the official religion of the developing world. Out with the gladiatorial Greek gods, enough with pretending Roman Caesars are divine. This Jesus who we crucified is Savior and Lord. It seemed like an astounding victory, but it turned out to be a subtle death blow. Because there's this obvious pattern throughout church history that the people of God always thrive in the worst conditions. But when the church buddies up with power, it tends to lead to spiritual powerlessness. So the life of the church that couldn't be stopped was then diluted and watered down, and all the appetites of the surrounding world crept into the lives of believers until they sang different songs, told a different story, had a different Sunday morning routine, but their lives were no different. The whole movement of Jesus was free-falling just as fast as it had risen. Some historians around this time started predicting the extinction of Christianity in their lifetimes. Why? Because the church was no longer getting into the empire. The empire was getting into the church. Friends, that is our story. But the church didn't hit rock bottom in the fifth century. Life was breathed back into her when everyone wanted to leave her for dead. The community was revived, the potency of the way of Jesus was preferred, and here we are. So what happened to turn the tide? How did the church recover her prophetic identity? A few ordinary radicals wandered off into the desert. And we think it started with this guy named Anthony in Egypt, but there was a movement of people, mostly unknown to each other, who returned to a simple life of prayer and the word. We call them today the desert fathers and mothers. And they walked off into the desert like Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry to stare down the idols of their time and ask the Spirit to form them into a wholly compelling contradiction. The result wasn't immediate. It was slow, 
but the result was life so compelling that people began to move out of the cities into the desert to be formed, reformed into the way of Jesus, or just like these radicals. And that is where we get the idea that we know today as rule of life. It didn't begin in abbeys and monasteries with monks and nuns. It began with a few reformers who saw the church being watered down and said, not on my watch. So in a time of chaos and compromise, when the church was losing the world and losing themselves, a few ordinary radicals protected the potency she had at first, and renewal flowed back into the church from the desert. Above the surface, there was a renewal, but under the hood, there lived a vow. And that, my friends, is not an anomaly. It is a pattern. In the fifth century, St. Benedict popularized the radical life of the desert fathers and mothers through the Benedictine rule. St. Francis and St. Dominic both created equally disciplined but entirely different orders aimed at radical poverty and identification with the poor. Count Zinzendorf, the founder of the Moravian movement, started what we know today as the global missions movement from a night and day prayer community in rural Germany, but it was the honorable order of the mustard seed, the rule of life, that he lived with a few others that held the whole thing together. John Wesley famously had his heart strangely warmed. The vision of Jesus captured him in a way that so overtook him, but then that was formed into a vow known as Wesley's Holy Club with 22 probing questions for introspection and accountability. Charles Finney, the revivalist of the Second Great Awakening in America, preached a farewell sermon in 1850 titled, The Christian's Rule of Life. His final sermon was to live what we're experiencing right now into maturity, to age this new wine into a fine vintage, we're gonna need a vow. Mother Teresa served the poor in a way that woke up the sleepy church and she ordered her personal life and her community around her humility list. Billy Graham famously filled stadiums with altar calls, but he called a team together to form a shared rule of life in Modesto, California that's now known as the Modesto Manifesto. Now, you will find a rule of life at the heartbeat of saints of every persuasion throughout church history, all of them above the surface stewarded renewals in the church, and all of them under the hood were covenanted together in common vows to God expressed in local communities. Above the surface there was a renewal, under the hood there was a vow. And if you study these various movements and the rules that undergird them in particular, there are three obvious themes to notice. And this comes from a, admittedly not a PhD level reading of church history, but a practitioner level reading of the movements. What are the themes that I notice? Well, there's at least these three. The first is counterformation. That every rule of life is set up intentionally in contrast to the cultural current of their time. So for example, one historian makes the case that St. Francis founded his order during an era when the surrounding culture was moving from a trade economy to a currency or a money economy. And greed was becoming common, it was leaking into the church in a new way because wealth was becoming possible in a new way. So his order, for the first time in history, included vows to poverty and identification with the poor. That was intentional counterformation against the, wa the cultural waters that they were swimming in. G.K. Chesterton says, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. Yes. Secondly, here's the second theme, it's always a minority of the church, never the majority. So the aim of every communal rule of life was never to get everyone to covenant to this. 
It's always been a minority of the church in every era. It's never been the majority. The gift of a rule of life to the broader church has always been that it creates a deep end in the swimming pool. So I've, I've heard it said that the church is like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. Is that your pastoral experience? that all the noise in your congregation is coming from those who are ankle deep? See, the gift of a rule of life, which is shared in community to the broader church is this, it's holy jealousy. Imagine what it might do to your local congregation if there was a few lay people, not pastors, I'm talking about lay people, swimming in the deep end of the pool, saying with their lives to everyone else, come on in, the water's fine. What if some noise started coming from the deep end? And then third, the final theme is this, it's shared, not individualized. And I would say that this is the blind spot or the missing ingredient in the minuscule modern day renaissance that the practice of rule of life is having, is it's always about training an individual to create an individualized rule of life. And that is not meant as a critique at all. It's just meant as an observation. I actually believe an individualized rule of life is a phenomenal starting place and a huge step forward from passive spiritual formation. And I also believe that an individualized rule of life is a somewhat diluted version of the full potency in practice. So a few years ago, uh, John Mark, myself, and a few other friends, we spent hours painstakingly sharing all of our practices and, and the individual rules of life that we held and creating a shared one. And the result of that is that it became shorthand in our conversation. Uh, I knew when you were fasting and you knew when I was. I knew the themes that you were praying and you knew the themes that I was praying. And, and we did not form some kind of weekly Zoom call to talk about how it was going or something, but it just began to be peppered into the ordinary conversation of these friendships that were already held. We were living a vision continuously together. And one of the great joys of my life, a gift that God is giving to me at the moment, is that this past Sunday night, after preaching three times, attending a couple prayer meetings, sending a few emails in between all of it, after a full day of ministry, I left our, our Sunday evening service and I sat down at a sidewalk cafe with a close friend of mine, someone who knows me as brother more than as pastor, someone who loves me and is not impressed by me. someone who knows my rule of life, and I know his. And as a result, the Venn diagrams of our spiritual lives are beginning to overlap more and more, naturally, not in a forced way. And we listened to one another and encouraged one another and held one another accountable and spurred one another on. It's reverse accountability, right? We've been handed a paradigm of accountability that's tell me the worst thing you did this week. This is a way of saying, here's who I want to become. But I've got a whole lot of life experience and a whole lot of human history that would indicate that I can't become who I want to become on my own. So will you help me along the path of living into my true God-given Imago Dei self? 
So why a rule of life? Because if you look under the hood of all the great renewal movements, you will discover again and again, ordinary people radically caught up in a vision, ordered by a rule of life to ensure they live that vision continuously, because to live a vision continuously requires a vow. And John Mark opened us talking about the vision, the desperate need for spiritual formation, for a deep, radical, rooted, whole life transformation to Jesus in the local church of our time. It was a call to move from information into formation. What is the wineskin that holds that wine? It's not a new wineskin, but an ancient one, repurposed for a new time and place, a rule of life. And so we've been dreaming for years together about putting this into practice. I've chipped away at it, both at Oaks Church Brooklyn, where I had the pleasure of, of leading in New York, and which is now bound together by a rule of life, and now here at Bridgetown, we're dreaming of a local church, or maybe even a few local churches, something like a new monastic movement, who are ordered around a communal rule of life. And the question that we've been asking and the path we've been walking is this, what if a shared rule of life was revived in our time? What might happen in our churches if there was a holy minority swimming in the deep end? Might we see the life of Jesus in our time the way that we read about and fits and starts throughout church history? Might we provoke holy jealousy in our culture like they did in theirs? And might we become a holy contradiction? See, what we're dreaming of is desert fathers and mothers in the middle of the city. The spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century. The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the Western Hemisphere. There are people alive today who may live to see the death of Christianity. That was the Pope less than 10 years ago. The wineskin that holds this wine isn't new, it's ancient. It's desert fathers and mothers in the middle of the city. It's people of counterformation who do not retreat into the desert, but live in the city under the rule of a different king and the reign of another empire. Ian Bradley, the Celtic historian, said, could it be that in the postmodern pick-and-choose spiritual supermarket we now inhabit, people are actually craving commitment, discipline, and obedience? Why? Because to live a vision continuously requires a covenant. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the restoration of the church will surely come from a sort of new monasticism, which has in common with the old only the uncompromising attitude of a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount and the following of Christ. I believe it is now time to call people together to do this. That's why. And finally, how do we live it? This is a room full of pastors, so I'm gonna assume that you can take it from here in, in living this into your personal life according to the Spirit's invitation. So the real question for sub substantive practice uh, like this has always been, that's always had this communal backbone is how do we live it together? That is the right question, but I am the wrong person to answer it. So I'm gonna ask Bethany to come up, and we're gonna chat together about how we are woefully stumbling and fumbling into this in a local church. And I'm gonna let her talk to you about how we're trying to live this at Bridgetown. Hello, Bethany. Hello. Hello. Thank you, sir. All right, so first, 
It would be wonderful if you could just share with the room what our journey into Rule of Life has looked like here at Bridgetown to date. Yeah, so uh, we started Rule of Life back when we were like in the cadence of doing Practicing the Way a couple years ago, and we introduced it towards the end of our journey. And I just have to say the, the first iteration or invitation to it um, was overwhelming. That's the word. I think, you know, at the time, um, I think for our people, conceptually, it was a harder thing to embrace or to get. I think we as a staff outpaced um, what we perceived the churches like where they were actually at. And so in that, I think we, we kind of hit a point as we were trying to introduce this idea with a ton of information, a lot of brilliance in just like history, story, all of that. Um, and they were like, what? And, and honestly, I was a little bit like, what? But privately to myself, you know? Because uh, uh, I was trying to figure out what is this, how do we translate this? So honestly, it just, for us, it didn't start off like a dazzling experience. It was one that conceptually we're trying to wrap our minds around and help our people wrap their minds around. So it, it didn't go super well. And what I think it taught us just at a base level was that this isn't gonna be like a nine week thing we introduce and say, go ahead do it, get after it, that this was gonna be years long of a journey of how we were gonna integrate the church and invite the church into this. So as a leadership team, I think we sobered up a little bit. We were excited, uh, but I think there was some sobriety that needed to be there as we began to even reimagine what this would look like for us. So can I keep going? Well, yeah, I, I just wanna jump in and say, Please. so Bethany you and I in conversation then thought, okay, 